Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Welcome back, everyone, to Patriot Coalition Live. I'm Jason Morocek. Thank you for joining us today. Our goal is to create a timeless resource to teach about the U.S. Constitution and the proper role of government, the importance of America's Judeo-Christian heritage, and how to defend against threats to our republic. But before we get into today's topic, I want to talk to you about something that you can do today to begin rooting out one of the major sources of corruption in America. This source of corruption is what we call the three-headed beast of mainstream media, big tech, and big business. These mega corporations are actively undermining our liberties through censorship, canceling, and destroying livelihoods because they don't like dissent, and they don't like people who share truths which threaten their power. Now, earlier this year, as you probably well know, Google, Apple, and Amazon Web Services, among others, canceled Parler or stopped giving access to Parler. Social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, they regularly suspend accounts when they don't like their posts. Now, why continue to send your money to Amazon when they are canceling and censoring those who you stand up for liberty? When you can spend your hard-earned money with freedom-loving companies who share your values and your principles. A company like conservativeeconomy.com. Now, conservativeeconomy.com has tons of companies to shop from with over 3,500 categories of products, with more being added every week. So chances are you will find what you're looking for at conservativeeconomy.com. So if you shop at a business that you love and you think that business would be a great fit at conservativeeconomy.com, go to our contact page and let us know. And if you own a business, go to the sell here link at conservativeeconomy.com and tell us about your business. Again, that website is conservativeeconomy.com. Please check us out today. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. Uh, today's episode, the title is Article 1, Section 8, General Welfare and Federal Spending. So as a review, Article 1 is all about Congress, and Article 1, Section 8 specifically talks about the limited powers of Congress. Today, we are going to talk again about the general welfare clauses, as well as their impact on federal spending. Okay, so let's get started. We talked about uh, general welfare clause, uh, the, the two places that it appears in the Constitution, several uh, episodes ago. We're going to revisit that a little bit today. But I want you to talk, I want to talk to you guys a little bit more about the problem that surfaces, the problem that we face today because of the abuse of these passages in the Constitution, right? So I'll talk a little bit about our current situation, uh, talk a little bit more about the Constitution, shocker, <laughs> and then also the solution to what, what it is that we're facing with the, the abuse of the, feder, uh, the general welfare clause, okay? Now, before we get started, I want to talk about through some definitions, and we'll probably review these as we go along. But we're going to use some terms that I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So, um, and most of them have to do with money, right? So, the first one is deficit. A deficit is essentially the difference between what we as a nation 
uh, earn in terms of taxes and, and revenues and what we spend in terms of all of our expenses. So the difference between those two is what we call the deficit. And you know, time immemorial, I think except for maybe the year 2000, we've always had a deficit, or at least in recent memory. That means that we are taking in less money than we are spending each year, okay? So that is the deficit. It's a year by year measure. Now, the next term is, is the debt. And when we say debt, we're talking about the accumulation of all of those deficits. Uh, so if we have $100 billion in deficit every year, after 10 years, our debt would be $1 trillion. So we're basically adding those up and adding to the debt, just like it is in your day-to-day your -day households. The next term that we're gonna talk about is something called unfunded liabilities. Now, the uh, liability is just a way to, to say that, hey, we know that we're gonna owe something to somebody. And unfunded means that we have no idea how we're gonna pay for it. We're, we're basically spending money that we don't have and we don't know how we're going to pay for it. And we'll talk more about that too. Now spending is, you know, it goes without saying what spending is. It's how much we, you know, we spend on programs every year. But more importantly, there's two types of those. One is discretionary and one is mandatory. Now mandatory, uh, actually let's start with discretionary first. Discretionary spending is things that we put into the budget every year and say, yep, we're going to spend this much on this program. Um, and we write it down in a budget every year. The mandatory spending are commitments that we have made. It kind of goes along with those unfunded liabilities. They are commitments that we have made by statute in, uh, in the bills that pass through Congress that say, you know, whatever we whatever we owe this person at this given time, we're going to pay it, even though we don't know how we're going to earn the money to do that. So the mandatory spending, and we'll cover this again, but these are things like Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, assistance programs, public assistance programs, et cetera. Uh, we're basically saying, yep, we'll cover it. We don't know how, but we're going to pay for those things. And then the final term is something called gross domestic product. And this is essentially a measure that is used in economics to determine the productivity of our economy. And it, essentially it's more complicated than what I'm giving it credit for right now, but suffice it to say for this, uh, this episode, it is essentially the products, uh, the sum of the, the value of products and services that are generated by our economy. You know, take all those products that are made and all the services, what the value of those are, uh, and that is our gross domestic product. Again, in a nutshell. Okay, so let, let's first about talk about the, the problem that we're facing. We currently are uh, spending money, and this hopefully doesn't come as a shock to, to many of you. We are currently spending way more money than we bring in every single year. As I alluded to, uh, the year 2000, we actually had a little bit of a surplus, but every other year since then, we've had a deficit. And again, deficit meaning that we are spending more than we are bringing in. And so again, based on what we talked about, our debt then is growing every single year. So the amount of money that we owe to both Americans and foreign uh, companies is rising every year. And the more money that we decide to throw into, let's say infrastructure or assistance programs or bailouts, um, it, it just adds to those deficits because we don't have the money to pay for. We're not bringing in that revenue. So the problem comes in, um, and so in fiscal year 2020, um, we 
threw on another, gosh, has to be about over $3 trillion in deficits. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the specific numbers as we come along. And that's basically twice, almost twice what the, the largest deficit in recent memory has been. And all for the, uh, the under the guise of to combat the China virus, right? Um, so as again, that deficit grows, our debt is skyrocketing, right? To the tune of, it's like somewhere up the tune of 27 to $28 uh, trillion when all is said and done. Now, the important part that we have to, to, to talk about, is we talked about that gross domestic product, right? Again, we're talking about the situation. Why is this important? Well, the gross domestic product is basically if we sold or, or, or earned revenue for everything that we produced in this country uh, at 100%, right? Everything. If we were just slaves to the system, I know some of you are saying we probably are already. And we basically sold that in order to pay down the debt. Um, where, where would that leave us in one year? Well, this year, we, uh, our percent, the, 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 the debt as a percent of the gross domestic product exceeded 100%. So in other words, the amount of debt that we owe Americans and foreign uh, countries is, would consume every product and every service that every American could produce in one year. So we are essentially, uh, and that does not include the, the interest on that debt, right? So if we just took one year and decided, hey, we're going to throw it all, everything that we pay, not, not 24% taxes or 37% taxes, but 100% taxes on everybody, everything we produce on individuals, corporations, et cetera, we would pay down the, the principal, but we'd still have a bunch of interest to pay. We could not pay it down in one year. This is a milestone, gang, because as the, obviously, if you think about your own, whether it's credit cards, mortgages, whatever kind of debt you have, you can't just pay down the principal. There's always interest accruing on that. And and some of us, I'm sure, we've gotten situations where, oh gosh, um, the amount of money that I'm bringing in as a household, I'm not able to make up any headway on this debt because I'm continuing to pay the interest. Well, imagine if as a country, it was the same, the same was happening, except not everybody's paying taxes, right? So this is a milestone moment. We crossed 100% of our, uh, of our debt as a percentage of our, our GDP, 100%, okay? Not a good thing. Now, this is just an aside, but um, I wanted, if you have not seen this website, I recommend you take a look at it um, on a day that you're in a good mood and can take a little bit of bad news. Uh, it's called usdebtclock.org. And if you go there, it has a running ticker of all sorts of financial indicators, including national debt, how much debt per citizen, per taxpayer, what the major sources of the uh, expenses are, all kinds of, of scary statistics, right? <clears throat> and that's where uh, sometimes I'll go to do some research. Even the numbers that I'm, I'm looking at today for this episode, um, they are a snapshot in time, you know, for 2020, most of them. Whereas the U.S. debt clock gives a running ticker of the estimate of what it is at any given second, right? Okay, so the long story short is we're, we're broke, gang. Um, we are spending, as a country, we are spending way more than we're bringing in. And, and to most of you, I know that's not a shock, but that is the bottom line, is we are broke and we're doing it to ourselves. 
So let's look at fiscal year 2020, uh, just as, as an example. Uh, the amount of money that we spent in 2020 was $6.6 trillion. Now the revenue that we brought in to offset that was only $3.4 trillion. That means our deficit in 2020 was $3.2 trillion. That is a lot of money. And that is just stacked on top of the debt that we already owe. <clears throat> so you might be asking yourself, okay, so how do we pay for this, what we call deficit spending? There's really only two ways. We either borrow the money to pay for it, or we print the money to pay for it. And when I say borrow, there's, there's two major sources. Um, when you think of uh, savings bonds, treasury bonds, treasury bills, things that the government produces and says, hey, look, I will pay you $100 you know, in seven years for $50 today. You give them $50 and they say, we'll pay you back. <clears throat> You know, in seven years, we'll pay you back $100. We also uh, sell those types of instruments to foreign countries. China, for example, owns about a third of our outstanding debt to other countries. Um, I think it's somewhere around $300 billion or something like that um, of a total of over $900 billion. Again, all these numbers are on usdebtclock.org. Now, so that's one way is we can borrow money from people to make up the difference. And like many of us do, if we're you know, running into tough times and we have to pay for something and we don't have it, we'll put it on a credit card. I mean, that's essentially borrowing it. But eventually we have to pay it back with interest. So that's a problem. The other way that we can pay for deficit spending is just to print money. You know, the, uh, the Federal Reserve um, can, or, or the Treasury, the Federal Reserve can actually just print the money, print more money and put it into circulation um, or take that money and use it to pay its obligations. You know, what it has committed to when we pass bills in Congress. And the problem with that is um, the more money that's in circulation, the value of every one of those dollars goes down, right? You know, if there's only, um, you know, 10 bars of, of gold in the world, uh, they're worth a certain amount. But if there's 10 of them, then they lose their value because they're not as in demand. Well, it's the same concept with money. The more they print, the, the value of every dollar, for example, in our pockets or in our bank accounts, it goes down. It cannot buy as much because there's more money in the economy that's chasing after the same amount of, of products and services. It's just the, uh, the, the concept of supply and demand. And so both those problems of deficit spending, whether we borrow it or whether we print it, we face significant issues. You know, printing money the way we are or even borrowing it uh, the way we are is eventually going to lead to hyperinflation where our dollars cannot just cannot continue to buy the same products that they, they can. It's going to take more and more of them um, to buy those products. And it means that we're not going to be able to get as many of them. It's a scary thought. Okay. So uh, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about... Um, Really, the, the, the federal spending in 2020, as I said, uh, we had $6.6 trillion that we spent, and we made only $3.4 trillion, right? So of that $6.6 trillion, the way it's broken down, remember we talked about discretionary spending, mandatory uh, spending. Of that $6.6 trillion, only 25% of it is discretionary. We can only choose to spend 25% uh, of, 
of $6.6 trillion. The rest of it, we are already obligated to and have been for years. We don't have a choice in the matter. So considering the fact that if we're trying to solve this problem, but as it stands today in every given, any given budget, we can only control 25% of that spending, that's a problem, right? Because it means that our hands are tied on the rest of it. And when I say tied, that is, that is the way that it is presented to the American public. We actually can fix this, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But when, you know, the uh, the legislature, when Congress says, well, you know, we're only going to decide on 25% of the spending, the rest of it, we already know where that money is going to go. We have to pay for all these programs that we've started years and years and years ago. Um, they're, they're really not even able to, to accomplish any sort of progress, any sort of uh, change to this system if they only deal with the discretionary part, right? So again, that mandatory part, um, that are those are things like Medicare, uh, um, Medicaid, uh, Social Security. Um, there is some stuff in there like defense spending that, you know, uh, there is some stuff. Well, actually, the defense spending every couple of years, we get to uh, allocate the money for that. So that wouldn't be considered mandatory. But Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, assistance for needy families, SNAP, you know, all those uh, what we call welfare programs are included in that mandatory spending. And so, Congress has made it so that we can't really touch that. And that's a problem. And we'll talk about how to fix that. Okay. It would be bad enough if uh, all those programs that I just talked about that are part of the mandatory spending, if it was all going to, you know, you know put set aside the fact that all those programs are not authorized by our constitution. Let's just say they were for a second. It would be, it would be, bad enough if we spent that much money on those programs. But add to the fact that we have essentially, in 2020, we spent $175 billion in improper payments to a bunch of these programs. Now, what do I mean by improper payments? Well, as the government describes it, it is a payment made by the government to the wrong person in the wrong amount or for the wrong reason. So again, a payment made to the wrong person in the wrong amount or for the wrong reason. We spent 175 billion of our tax dollars on those things and not all of them are recovered. Actually, not even a, a good portion of them are recovered. So who are the big culprits? Well, let's talk about this for a second. So out of the 175 billion, the biggest three culprits are Medicare, Medicaid, and the earned income tax credit for a total of $121 billion of improper payments. So not only are these things unconstitutional, the spending is unconstitutional, but we're also just throwing money out there to the wrong people in the wrong amounts or for the wrong reasons, and we're not getting it all back, right? So that $175 billion, that could have paid for 29 border walls. That could have paid for 875, no, eight, yeah, 875,000 doctors to provide care for uh, the, to the VA, to veterans. All these problems that we're facing, and here we are, we're just giving improper payments to all of these um, mandatory programs that we set up years ago that we have no control over today. Are you getting the sense for what the scope of this problem is and why this 
while you know the the illegal alien invasion was one of my you know pet projects if you will the things that motivated me and inspired me to do a lot of my uh fight you know on behalf of liberty and education this spending problem has become probably a, a close number two you know to within the top two or three and, and and hopefully now you can see why okay so speaking of you know i, I keep mentioning that these programs are unconstitutional well, as I may have mentioned, uh, you know, in uh, 2020, I ran for Congress here in the great state of Texas. Texas. Now, um, before I did that, I wanted to get a, an idea of what the problem is that I was facing. You know, I didn't want to just get into Congress and say, okay, what do I do now, right? So what I did is I actually did an analysis. Uh, and in my day job, um, it's what I do. I, you know, analyze numbers, come up with solutions, you know, find root cause of problems. So this stuff comes naturally to me. So I looked at the fiscal year 29 budget. And that year, so in the in fiscal year 2019, um, we actually had a budget of a spending of $4.5 trillion. And I looked at every single major category of spending. You know, there's a whole bunch of line items in there, hundreds and hundreds. And I made a determination, is this line item, is it authorized under Article 1, Section 8 uh, of the Constitution, the enumerated powers? And I made a notation of whether it was constitutional or whether it was unconstitutional. Did it fit in those 17 clauses in Article 1, Section 8 that we've been going over for the past several weeks, for probably seven weeks? And <clears throat> after I did that, I looked at, okay, so how much of this $4.5 trillion was constitutional spending. And I would, I, you know, I, I'd love to have the feedback, but, you know, I, I always ask people, so what would you guess out of that $4.5 trillion? How much of it was constitutional? And I'm, as I sit here today, only $1.5 trillion of that was constitutional spending. So only one third of all the money that we spent that year was in accordance with the constitution. It, it was authorized by those 17 uh, different categories of enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8. That leaves $3 trillion that we spent on stuff that we never should have. Okay, so now think about that. If we had $3 trillion back from 2019, or maybe $4 trillion or $5 trillion back from this year, $4.5 trillion, that's a lot of money that we could have been putting back down to this, uh, to paying down on this debt, to make sure that we're not under the gun in terms of the paying off that interest or accruing, you know, accruing more interest, right? Or having to borrow so much every year if we were to stay within our means. But the point is, is that we should not be spending any money that is not authorized by the constitution. Okay, so speaking of constitutional spending, let's get back into what it was we talked about a little bit in uh, several weeks ago when we talked about the general welfare clause and what it meant because the reason why we're focusing on this is this is one of the primary reasons the general welfare clause uh, is one of the three main culprits of our, our uh, spending problems, general welfare, the commerce clause, and the necessary and proper clause, as I mentioned last week. So in the preamble to the U.S. Constitution, I'm going to read the, th this part. It says, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, 
and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So again, in there is the first time we see in the Constitution that clause, promote the general welfare. Now, the second time we see it is in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, which says, quote, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Again, that's the second time we see that, that phrase, general welfare. So just as a reminder as to where that comes from, um, in the, the, the records of the Federal Convention, you know, which is essentially the notes that were taken during the Constitutional Convention, on May 29th in 1787, Edmund Randolph, one of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, um, proposed the following that resolved that the Articles of Confederation ought to be so corrected and enlarged as to accomplish the objects proposed by their institution, meaning the, the Articles of Confederation, namely common defense, security of liberty and general welfare. Okay, so he's saying that the Articles of Confederation need to be corrected and enlarged, meaning the expanded, uh, growing in power in order to provide those things that were named in it because it, we weren't doing a good job. The, the central government did not have enough uh, authority in order to, to secure those means. So let's keep that in mind. Keep that enlarged in mind. He, wants, he says that they need to be grow in power. Now, let's look back at the Articles of Confederation again. And we talked about this several weeks ago, but we're going to talk about it again really quick. In the Articles of Confederation, in Article 3, it says, quote, the said states, meaning all the colonies, hereby severally enter into a firm league of friendship with each other for their common defense, security of their liberties, and their mutual and general welfare. Okay, so that's the part that that, that is the phrase from the Articles of Confederation where we get the phrase general welfare. And you notice that it doesn't say provide general welfare. It says these are the reasons why these states are entering into a league of friendship is so that they can provide uh, to each other general welfare. In other words, the, the, uh, the more states, the more safe, secure, and the better off people are. It doesn't say that the government's going to provide that to them. So this is where that they are taking from the Articles of Confederation and then the two places that I mentioned where they actually inserted it in the Constitution. Okay, so now that we kind of have a, a context and a framework for where it came from and why it is in the Constitution, again, not to provide welfare, but it is a byproduct of coming together as a, as a union, several states coming together. So why is it that, you know, the, the, and, and what we're getting at here is why is it that every elected official at the, at the uh, central government level, you know, Congress, uh, any, any legislator uh, at the central government level is using the general welfare clause to say they can do whatever they think that they can to provide for the general welfare? Well, let me give you um, what is considered one of the primary authors of the Constitution, James Madison said when he wrote a letter to Edmund Pendleton on January 21st, 1792. In it, Madison says, quote, if Congress can do 
whatever in their discretion can be done by money and that will promote the general welfare, the government is no longer a limited one possessing enumerated powers, but, it, but an indefinite one subject to particular exceptions. It is to be remarked that the phrase out of which this doctrine, meaning general welfare, is elaborated, is copied from the old Articles of Confederation where it was always understood as nothing more than a general caption to the specified powers, end quote. So this is what the actual, uh, one of the authors of the Constitution, a delegate who took the most copious notes in the convention said about that phrase, general welfare, back in 1792. He, um, so that's one, one of the things that he said about this phrase. Here's another thing that he said in, in Federalist 41, one of the Federalist essays that uh, James Madison wrote. He said, quote, for what purpose could the enumeration of particular powers be inserted if these and all others, meaning all other powers, were meant to be included in the preceding general power, meaning the general welfare clause. Nothing is more natural nor common than first to use a general phrase and then to explain and qualify it by recital of particulars. In other words, he's saying the general welfare is just a heading. And then after the general welfare clause in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, it is listed all of the other uh, enumerated powers that fall under the general welfare. It makes, it makes perfect sense. So now that we're talking about these enumerated powers and we, and we have for several weeks, you know, we broke them down clause by clause. Remember the, the clause one of article one, section eight says the Congress shall have power to provide for the common defense and the general welfare of the United States. Right. Those are two different things. And remember how Madison says, what is more natural than to say these are the general headings that are more um, that recitals of particulars are listed later to describe the general powers? Well, if you think about all of the powers in those clauses that we've talked about for several weeks, they fall into those two categories, common defense and general welfare. Let's talk about the common defense first, because those are usually the first ones. Well, they, they are the first ones that come across in Article 1, Section 8. Punishing piracy, declaring war and, and letters of mark, raising and supporting armies, providing and maintaining a navy, governing and regulating the army and navy, calling forth militias, organizing and arming militias. All those fall under the heading of common defense. And then there's the rest of the powers, the general welfare powers collecting taxes and paying debts, borrowing money, regulating commerce, the naturalization of, uh, of aliens, bankruptcies, coining money, uh, providing for weights and measures, punishing counterfeiting, um, building post offices and roads, um, the arts and sciences and patents, establishing courts, legislating the things that happen in the Capitol or Washington DC. All these things fall into the general welfare uh, of clause one. So as Madison says, it's more natural to say, hey, look, these fall into two different categories, common defense and general welfare. Now we're going to enumerate the specific powers that fall under each one. It's very, very common sense. Okay. So again, Madison, uh, you know, he, as you can imagine, we're not the only ones that have been struggling through this uh, with this concept throughout history. It started early and Madison tried to nip it in the bud, right, from the, from the get-go because he was there along with a lot of other of the delegates. So in a letter that Madison writes to Andrew Stevenson in 1830, so this is a little bit later on in his life, he says, 
it, quote, it exceeds the possibility of belief that the known advocates in the convention for a jealous grant and cautious definition of federal powers, meaning they took a lot of time coming up with those enumerated powers and arguing back and forth. He, so, he says it, it exceeds the possibility of belief that the known advocates in the convention for a jealous grant and cautious definition of federal powers should have silently permitted the introduction of words or phrases in a sense rendering fruitless the restrictions and definitions elaborated by them. He's saying, look, we took so much time going and making sure that we had uh, enumerated powers that were as specific as practical and, and we debated in them and we threw some out, you know, we proposed some, we threw those out. We got down to this, you know, list of 17 things that uh, Congress was allowed to do. Why would we go to all that trouble and then just say, oh, not say anything if we thought general welfare meant something completely different that you could do whatever you wanted? The answer is that they wouldn't, right? It was not the original intent of the phrase general welfare. And yet today, uh, our elected officials at, in Congress are using that to spend boatloads of money on things that they shouldn't be. So these are really the appeals to common sense, uh, you know, that we've been talking about. If if the Articles of Confederation had the word general welfare in it, and we know that that's where it came from to be inserted into the Constitution. So if in the in the Articles of Confederation general welfare meant they could do whatever they wanted to and spend whatever the money they wanted to, they essentially had all the power they already needed. So why would it need to be enlarged as Edmund Randolph proposes in the Constitutional Convention? The answer is you wouldn't need to enlarge it because you had all the power you needed if general welfare meant you could do whatever you wanted. Another question appealing to common sense, why would they enumerate all of the, the powers if they were already intended to be just broad at general welfare? Why would they take the trouble to list all them out if general welfare meant whatever you want to do and whatever you want to spend it on? Again, the answer is you wouldn't. Next question, why was there so much objection and debate about in the enumerated powers, but not for the phrase general welfare? Were they just going to take it from the Articles of Confederation, plop it into the Constitution, not talk about it at all, and not address the fact if it truly meant that they could do whatever they wanted? No, they wouldn't. And again, why was there no objection, you know, considering they went through the Constitutional Convention, where nothing was said about the, the phrase general welfare, the ratifying debates in all 13 co uh, colonies, where there was nothing that was articulate that said, oh, it's just a general power, we can do whatever we want. Why did no one object to it there? And the subsequent amendments where we actually um, went through and, and figured out our, our Bill of Rights. If we felt that these were so problematic or someone had a different definition of what general welfare meant, <laughs> it, it defies logic to think that we could have gone through the Constitutional Convention, all the ratifying debates, and the, sub and the debates of the subsequent amendments, and this subject would have never come up. It just defies logic. Okay, so what I'm trying to drive at here is the Constitution is the solution. The Constitution means what it says it means. It means what it was originally intended to say. It doesn't mean whatever the elected officials today in Congress say it means. And they can't just hijack it. Now they've gotten away with it 
but that's our fault, right? We're the ones that are not holding them accountable. We're the ones sending them back when we know what they're doing. And if you didn't know, well, now you know. And I'm going to just get briefly into a couple other um, things that can help you to, to see the problem and, and why I keep pointing to the elected officials, specifically uh, members of Congress. And we're going to talk about this more uh, in a future episode in terms of how you can actually research a bill and see what's in it and see what the reasoning for it is. Okay. So what I'm about to describe is only applies to the House of Representatives. Um, the Senate doesn't, as far as I know, they may, and I, I may have missed it, but I know the House of Representatives since about 2009, which is the, the 113th Congress, they introduced a rule that says uh, that all bills that are introduced must cite, quote, as specifically and practicable the powers or powers granted to Congress in the Constitution to enact the bill. So in other words, if you're going to author a bill, you have to write the specific authority in the Constitution that gives you the, uh, the authority to, to write a bill uh, for, uh, for that purpose. Okay, and that's House Rule 12, paragraph 7C, uh, unless they've changed it most recently. Okay, and, and the way that you can you can look at this. Now, again, we're going to get more detail of this in a, in a different episode, but if you are familiar with congress.gov, you can go there and you can research bills. You can look them up. You can look at what is in the bills that are being debated. Uh, when you pull up the, the main uh, summary for the bill, off to the right, again, this is only for House bills, not Senate bills. Off to the right of the screen, you will see a little section. It's a link that says constitutional authority statement. If you click on that, a pop-up will appear that will tell you what um, article and section of the Constitution the author cited as his authority or her authority to author this bill. And I'll tell you, gang, this is being used and abused. It is a check-the-box um, sort of requirement that they're using because clearly no one is even confirming that these things are accurate. And I'm going to give you some examples. <clears throat> The Coronavirus Supplemental Appropriations Act cites Article 1, Section 8, which is essentially the General Welfare Clause, you know, the whole enumeration of powers, all the powers of Congress. So one, they're not specific, and uh, it's it, it doesn't actually address the, the subject, right? It's a very general section. There's a lot in there. As, you know, we've been, this is, I think, our eighth week on Article 1, Section 8. The Families First Coronavirus Response Act cites Clause 7 of Section 9, of Article One of the Constitution, um, and it also cites Clause One of Section Eight, which is the General Welfare Clause. So again, I'm showing you the pattern that these legislators, these members of Congress, are just throwing stuff against the wall because they don't think anybody's going to pay attention, and and no one's going to hold them accountable to it. The Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2020, again, Clause One of Section Eight of Article One, which is the one that cites the General Welfare Clause. Gun Violence Prevention and Community Safety Act of 2020, Article 1, Section 8, which is the broad category of all the enumerated powers. USA Freedom Reauthorization Act of 2020, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, the Necessary and Proper Act. So these are what the, the members of Congress are citing as their authority to write these bills. They have nothing to do with them. They're not specific. They, they are not um, 
they're not addressing the specific uh, sections of their bill and, and why they have authority to do that. And this is the problem. So we'll talk more about that as we as we uh, get into another episode where we can kind of walk through how to do that research. Okay, so the, the, the bottom line here is, what is the solution? It's a couple parts. One is we have to elect members of Congress who understand what it is I've just explained to you, what the general welfare is, and more importantly, what it isn't. And as Nancy Reagan famously uh, coined, just say no. There are so many bills that are thrown across her desk that they should just be uh, voting against because they don't have the authority. Congress does not have the authority to enact those bills. Um, there are unconstitutional provisions. They should any any bill. And, and this was my pledge, actually, when I ran for Congress. Any bill that had an unconstitutional provision in it would automatically get a no vote. As soon as I've read through it and got to something that was unconstitutional, they have to say no. Otherwise, they are not honoring their oath to support and defend the Constitution. Beyond that, um, sometimes these Congress, Congress uh, members of Congress are given insufficient time to read these bills. Some of them are hundreds and th if not thousands of pages long, and they're given 48 hours to read it. No one's going to read it, uh, comprehend it in that amount of time. So if they aren't given enough time to digest it, they shouldn't be voting on it because they don't know what's in it. They should just be either abstaining. Um, or again, if they come to a first part that says, you know, the first section that's unconstitutional, it gets a no vote. And in addition to that, we've got to have some of these members of Congress who are going back and repealing some of these bills where Congress had no authority uh, to enact them. Now, I know that's asking a lot because um, the people that we send to, to Congress, they're not there to, we're sending them there to do the right thing but they're not doing the right thing when they're there, right? They are um, going along to get along. They're not courageous. They're not willing to stand up for the, the, the document that they took an oath to support and defend. And that's just wrong on many levels. Okay, so that about covers today. Hopefully it's giving you a sense for why the general welfare clause is being abused so much, what its original intent is, all of the arguments uh, that are strongly in, in, uh, in support of a strict interpretation of those enumerated powers and what we really should be doing about it. Oh, you know, and I mentioned, I forgot to mention that. Yes, those members of Congress have to be doing these things, but if they don't, you and I have to stop sending them back to Washington. It was, uh, I think, Governor Zebulon Vance in North Carolina, I think he was their first governor who said, if you find that you are sending scoundrels and scalawags to Congress or to Washington, you've got to turn them out and you got to keep turning them out until you send honorable men to Washington. And that's what we've got to do. But if, if they don't know about this and we don't know about this, this is we're never going to be able to fix this problem. Understanding is the first step. And then we have to hold accountable. If not them, then we have to hold them accountable until they are understanding that they can't slide this stuff by us anymore. Okay. So that about wraps it up uh, for this episode. Um, if you would like to support us, please go to patriotcoalitionlive.com support. And your support is a big help to us. If you're not already a regular subscriber, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts at places like iHeartRadio and Spotify. And uh, again, Thank you, everyone, for uh, listening, and we will see you here next time. Take care.